You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Elon Musk is now the richest person on the planet. More than half the satellites in space are owned and controlled by one man. Well, he's a legitimate super genius. I mean, legitimate. He says he's always voted for Democrats, but this year it will be different. He'll vote Republican. There is a reason the U.S. government is so reliant on him. Elon Musk is a scam artist, and he's done nothing. Anything he does yeah. is fascinating to yeah. people. Hi, everybody. Max Chafkin here with another episode of Elon, Inc., We have something special for you today. It is an interview with Kurt Wagner. Kurt is a social media reporter at Bloomberg. You heard him on this podcast before, and he has a new book. It's called Battle for the Bird, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, and the $44 billion fight for Twitter's soul. Kurt is one of my favorite writers at Bloomberg, and and he really is the go-to journalist on this topic. And I think it's going to be really great to just go deep on this one specific part of Elon Musk's empire. I've sort of imagined this conversation in three parts. The first part is going to be essentially the man crush that set this whole thing off. The second part is going to be we're going to get conspiratorial. We're going to talk about why this happened. And there's some really kind of crazy things. And the last part is going to be some really smart analysis on where this is going. Kurt is here with me now. Kurt Wagner, welcome to Elon Inc. Hi, Max. I am thrilled to be here. Thanks for doing this. It's fun. It's nice to see you. Okay. So the book, you know, is in large part focused on this relationship between Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey, the the founder of Twitter. But before we get there, I just want to talk about why it matters. Like, like we we sort of spent a lot of time in this podcast and, and outside in the media, you see a lot of people sort of making fun of the ways that Twitter has kind of gone downhill. But like, why does this site still matter? Like, why is it important in your mind? I think when Twitter was at its best, it was the go-to place for literally all breaking news, right? Like if something happens on the streets of New York, the first thing you do literally is pull out Twitter and and try and figure out like what's going on right here. And that ultimately attracted like every journalist in the world, essentially. It attracted celebrities, it attracted politicians. And even though we've seen Twitter change under Elon, I think that a lot of the kernels of that are still the case, right? And like Twitter is a place where news sort of happens. It's like one of the rare places online where like literally if someone tweets something, it becomes like a global headline. And we saw that very clearly for four straight years with with uh, President Donald Trump, as you remember. So I just feel like this this service is unique in that way and that it's like a newsmaker's service. And even under Elon, I, I feel like that still happens, you know, quite a bit. You talked about just this thing being like where the news happens 
it's not quite that anymore, right? It's it's something like it's some it's like that, but more right wing. It's like that, but with Alex Jones. How do you see that evolution? The biggest change for me has been the lack of like Twitter was very a quick way to get the news, and now I feel like it's not quick anymore because you don't really know who anybody is, right? Like before. With the verification system, you could like open it up. You'd immediately see like, okay, these people, these blue check people are talking in my feed. And I can sort of believe with some level of confidence, these are people who I, at the very least, might want to hear from, right? Like they're real people. They probably have a position of some authority. And that has changed, right? Basically, if you have $8, you're a blue check person now. And so when you open the feed in like a breaking news environment and you're surrounded by like all these blue checks who are spouting off, you have no idea who they are. You have to pause and and do your own research. And so for me, the biggest difference is like it is not nearly as reliable as a news service as it was two years ago. And considering that was what Twitter was best at, like that was the thing that Twitter was, that's a huge problem. So Twitter's founder, I guess co-founder Jack Dorsey he was a he's he was running the company at, at the time this all all went down. Yeah. One one reason I think this book is really interesting and relevant to this podcast is because it, it in certain ways it's like the story of it's just partly the story of Jack's sort of obsession relationship with Elon Musk and 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 also the way maybe all of us put things on this person named Elon Musk. And I just want to let's just like talk about how did his like when did he get so into Elon? Like yeah. like when did he become this when did Elon become a source of interest to Jack Dorsey, you know, famous Silicon Valley entrepreneur? I'm not sure if I could pinpoint the moment the the admiration kicked in, but we know that it was several years before Elon took over because Jack used to refer to Elon as his favorite tweeter quite regularly, right? There's several interviews where where people would say, who do you love to follow? And he'd be like, Elon Musk, he really pushes the envelope, right? And it's like one way of describing you know, getting yourself into legal disputes with the SEC. But like, I think that- what, what, But wait, what is it about those tweets though? I think he thought that Elon like was unfiltered, right? And I think there's, I think if you ask Jack, like you've heard him perhaps talk about Twitter as this global consciousness, right? Like Twitter is the global consciousness. It's It's the collective way that people think. And for Elon, it was a very unfiltered thought process, as we've learned. It's just sort of like what comes into his brain shows up on his Twitter feed. And to Jack Dorsey, I think he like wished that everyone would be that free with their thoughts on Twitter. And so he th- he saw Elon as sort of this like famous example of what he wanted everyone else to be doing on Twitter. Yeah, it's weird. It's funny how there are certain people, Elon Musk being one of them, who are just like intuitively understand this thing and maybe understand the nature of celebrity in 2024 or whatever. Right. So so you talk about this kind of like Jack has this is on this quest essentially. He's still running the company, but he's got he's got this Elon Elon specific quest which is like essentially what to get Elon to show up and give a talk to the company, right? Yeah, so this happens first in 2018, he tries to get Elon to come to what's called one team, which was like Twitter's like company-wide offsite. And at the last minute, Elon bails because he's like literally sleeping on the factory floor building. I believe it's the Tesla 3 at the time. 
uh, the Model 3. So he doesn't show up and everyone's like, oh, bummer, you know, would have loved to hear from from Elon. Now, fast forward two years, it's 2020 and Jack does get him to show up. He shows up on FaceTime in front of the whole company. And it's just like really interesting exchange. You know, imagine 5,000 employees sitting in this convention hall. They're like looking up at the stage. Jack Dorsey's standing up there, literally holding his iPad. And on the screen, he is FaceTiming with Elon Musk, who shows up in his Occupy Mars t-shirt. I believe he's like at SpaceX's facility. And they have this conversation and like Jack, you can tell is like, he very much likes Elon and he wants to flatter Elon. And he makes some joke about, hey, like, would you love to run the company someday? Like, ha ha ha, and everyone sort of chuckles. And Elon spends his brief moment in front of the whole company just complaining about bots. And he's like, yeah, how do you know who's like, what's a botnet versus what isn't? Are these like short sellers or are these like real people, blah, blah, blah. And he complains and and, and uh, about bots. And then Jack Dorsey ends the thing and he's like, we love you. We love what you're doing. And, and it ends, right? And like in the moment, it's like, okay, if you're a Twitter employee, maybe that's like, kind of fun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah, but it's like a movie level, like foreshadowing, right? Because you fast forward two years and it's like, oh, like Jack was like, hey, do you want to run the company? Guess what he's asking Elon? Like, hey, do you want to run the company? What's Elon complaining about? He's complaining about bots, right? Like these things came back around, which is one of the reasons I put it in the book. I just thought it was like such a remarkable scene two years ahead of the acquisition. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. All right, so let's let's move on to the the takeover, which is just so weird in retrospect. I want to walk through this acquisition and, and talk about you know kind of what you learned in, in reporting the book, but I think just to kind of set the scene here, I want to take everyone back to April 2022, the TED conference, Elon Musk innovator, world's richest man, is asked, you know, what he's doing. And and this is what he says. So, Elon, um, a few hours ago, you made an offer to buy Twitter. (laughs) Why? (laughs) How'd you know? (laughs) Little bird tweeted in my ear or something. I don't know. By the way, have you seen the movie Ted about the bear? I, I, I have. I <laughs> it's have. a good movie. Why, why make that offer? Oh, so 
Um, well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech, uh, where all, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Um, Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square, um, so uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. So, yeah, super, super interesting, totally very mature, totally normal. <laughs> This is great timing, right, Kurt? Elon Musk, he's a genius. He's got an intuitive sense of business timing, right? This was perfect. April 2022 for this moment. If you're going to overpay for a social network, April 2022 was the best time to ever do that. No, his timing, of course, as we know now, was was disastrous, right? I mean, like he comes in. He essentially forces the board into this deal, right? He gives them this incredible offer. What he may or may not know behind the scenes is like the company has set these very lofty targets around user growth and revenue that they're not coming close to hitting. They're thinking about doing a second or a very large round of layoffs. Like the business is not in a good shape. And here comes Elon, the white knight, like completely overpaying for Twitter. And so the board jumps at this, right? And they're like, wow, this is an incredible like exit for this company that that's kind of solves a bunch of these problems that we're, that we're predicting or, or preparing to deal with. And then shortly after that, you know, inflation goes through the roof and you know, there's a war going on in Europe that starts to, to spook a bunch of people and, and spook sort of just the financial market, markets globally. And his own net worth takes this huge hit. Like within weeks, we're talking tens of billions of dollars of Elon's own net worth that, that are just disappearing. And so you fast forward, you start kind of mid-April, and you fast forward one month and his whole mindset around this acquisition is already changing because he's now locked into this really overpriced thing and he's realizing, uh-oh, my timing was was absolutely terrible. Maybe that weed joke acquisition price was not as funny as I thought it was at the time. 54.20. Didn't slip past a lot of people. <laughs> All right. So one of the things, again, this was like, it's it's sort of hard to overstate. I mean, Elon stands... And, and and even even those of us covered have gotten used to the idea that this happened. So it was sort of like hard to imagine why this happened. Why does this guy who has basically dedicated his life by his own account to you know making humanity a multiplanetary species to saving the Earth from global warming? Like why does he suddenly start worrying about? Um, is Twitter going to ban Scott Adams or something? Or like, like is Cat Turd being demonetized? <laughs> anyway, he gets really into this. And, and, and the book offers a variety of theories, and they're all so fun. So I, I just want to sort of go through a couple of them with you right now. Starting with, I think, what is like the Elon Musk official version of the story, which is essentially he had too much money in his bank account, and he needs somewhere to put it. That's right. This is the theory uh, that was sort of outlined in Walter Isaacson's recent book about Elon Musk was that he, you know, like like all of us rich guys are, Max, you you and I know when you just have too much money, we got to go spend it on something frivolous. Right. And so this would be the equivalent of maybe a less rich person going and buying like a vacation home or a, a yacht or something. But for Elon, it was Twitter, right? And so this is what Walter sort of says in his book is that he just didn't want his money to sit in a bank account. He wanted to do something with it. And Twitter was like his favorite thing to use. And so that became the target for him. Yeah. And I, I guess it's also that he really liked it. It's sort of related to the Jack Dorsey thing. Like, hey, this is like my favorite 
you know, way to way, way to spend yeah. my time. So uh, do what you love, as they say. Yeah, I think he, this for him was like a personal, like favorite product that he he very much loved to use. And so the idea of owning it, I guess, sounded really cool when you have more money than you know what to do with. And the next thing, the next one I want to talk about is this text message that he gets from Tallulah Riley, who is his two times ex-wife. Elon does everything bigger than most people, so they've actually been married <laughs> and divorced twice. And she sort of makes a, a suggestion to him with respect to Twitter. Yeah, she does. So the super quick backstory here is that Twitter had suspended account from the Babylon Bee, which is like a satire site, I guess, that was making jokes about trans people, quite frankly. And, you know, they're they're off-color jokes that not a lot of people find very funny, but there are people who do. And Tallulah Riley, I guess, is one of those people. And she was upset that the account had been suspended. And so she texts her ex-husband and says, you know, and I'm looking at this now, she says, can you buy Twitter and then delete it, please? America is going insane. And then a few minutes later, she goes, or can you buy Twitter and make it radically to, free speech? To be fair, we've all yeah, had that I mean, thought. Twitter, yeah, we all want Elon to buy Twitter or our ex-spouses to buy Twitter. But, you know, here she is basically saying, can you buy this and make it radically free speech? And a few minutes after that, Elon texts back and says, maybe buy it and change it to properly support free speech. Now, you'd think this is maybe just the kind of like fun banter between two people who used to, to have a relationship. But, you know, in, in the world of Elon – this leads to like less than 24 hours, him tweeting uh, to all of his followers saying like, does there need to be a new platform? And when people say yes, then a day after that, it's, well, now he's suddenly going to uh, buy shares and, and try and join the board of Twitter, right? And so you can see how this one like kernel of a conversation perhaps led Elon down this path towards, you know, wanting to turn Twitter into this free speech place. And it all maybe starts with like the Babylon Bee, which I find to be quite interesting and sort of hilarious. Yeah, there's a back, there's a whole interesting kind of side alley we could go down around Elon and comedy. He, you know, the Babylon Bee is kind of a competitor to the onion. He at one point had tried to take over the onion. He got worried it was too woke. And so it does seem like somewhat plausible that that he could have been feeling very sympathetic to the Babylon Bee and wanted to commit this $44 billion act to to resolve it. I want to come back to the suggestion that he was trying to kill Twitter in a sec in a second, but before we get there, the third theory yeah. is that Elon Musk bought Twitter and this is new. This is this is breaking news folks. This is in Kurt's book <laughs> that that he did this because and now I'm reading a little bit into Kurt's book here, but but what Kurt's book reports is that before buying Twitter, Elon Musk was sending complaints privately to Jack Dorsey and Parag Agarwal. We talked about one of those complaints just now, but also complaining about this Twitter account that's following his plane. Yeah, so at ElonJet, you may be familiar with, if you followed the world of Elon, it's literally an account that tracks the whereabouts of his private plane, when it takes off, when it lands, where it takes off, where it lands. And Elon was very unhappy with this for, you know, I guess, obvious reasons. He didn't like the idea of his location being out there publicly. And so he complained to Parag in January of 2022, asking for the account to be removed. And uh, Parag essentially ignored him, right? Or certainly didn't take his uh, complaints and do anything with it. And so what was interesting about that timing is that at the very end of January 2022 was when Elon Musk started buying shares of Twitter. And you could imagine, and I don't think this is that huge of a stretch, that, you know, 
he wants this account removed. They're not doing it for him. What could you do if you had more money than you knew what to do with? Well, you could become a shareholder in that company and try and use your position as a shareholder to sort of pressure them to to take this account down or whatever. And there are people involved in the deal that I've spoken to who believed that this was a real motivation for him. Now, whether he intended for it to snowball in the way that it did, I don't know. But there are people who definitely thought Elon Jet was sort of the genesis of this stock purchase that he started to do. Well, I do think it's believable because, as we know, later on he takes action, right? He he bans the he he bans the creator of Elon Jet for a time, and in fact bans anyone who anyone who speaks of Elon Jet. If you, <laughs> if you if you link to outside you know instances of this account, you would also get banned, and, and including he banned a New York Times journalist. So so th- it's clear this was a fixation. Yeah, he did, and he created an entire new policy at Twitter on a whim about like doxing someone's real-time location and how Elon Jet basically violated that policy. And now Elon Jet does exist, but it's like a 24-hour delay. So basically you can find out where Elon flew yesterday versus like where Elon is flying right now. So this became a thing that he changed and took action on once he took over. So to your point, Max, I do think it's like, it's not that crazy of an idea that this all started with uh, the Elon Jet account. All right. Well, I want to fly the business jet that is this podcast to (laughs) talk about the actual process of reporting this book. You've been covering Twitter for how long? I mean, like 15 years? How how long has it been, Kurt? Yeah, 11 or 12 years. Yeah, it's been a very long time. You have all of these sources, I'm thinking. Like, how did they process all this craziness that's happening? Like, world's richest man is, like, going to take over their company and save Western civilization or something in the process. I think when Elon first showed up, there was actually this feeling that, you know, this is cool. This is good. The richest man in the world who has more money than he knows what to do with could do anything he wants. And what he wants to do is work on Twitter. And to a lot of people who worked there, that was sort of encouraging and at the very least validating to what they were doing and building. I think it it didn't take very long for them to realize that Elon was not a good cultural fit for what Twitter had built and that his management style was so unpredictable and so at odds with what they were used to that it was not really the the vibe that they were hoping. I think if Elon had stayed as a board member and just simply like maybe advised, I think people would have been actually pretty excited about that. But I think the takeover itself went sideways quite quickly. So what was the breaking point? So there was a a meeting in June of 2022. So quick on the timeline, Elon Musk arrives in in late March, early April. He's acquired the company on paper by the end of April. He starts to sort of badmouth the company shortly after that. You know, we talked about how he realized his timing was terrible. He's sort of like getting cold feet about this deal. But there was still this like all employee Q&A that had been scheduled with Elon for mid-June, right? And so at this point, Elon is still supposed to be buying the company. These are people who are sitting down and thinking they're hearing from their future boss, right? And so there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of anticipation. And he shows up late. He shows up sort of a little disheveled. His like this is an in-person meeting. It is on this is on video because everyone is still basically working remotely at this point. But he sh- he shows up late. He shows up like his collar is like splayed open. He his hair is sort of like messed up. There's like some random guy that no one knows who it is who's like working in the background behind him, and 
it it goes terribly, quite frankly. Like he rambles for like eight or nine minutes at the very beginning. Kurt, by the way, we have a clip to play, I think, of this meeting. Let's listen to it quickly. I mean, right now the the costs exceed the revenue. So that's just, that's not that's not a great situation to be in. Um and so there would have to be some rationalization of, of the of headcount and expenses to have revenue be greater than their cost. Otherwise, Twitter is simply not, not viable or, you know, can't grow. You know, but like I said, anyone who's like, obviously like a significant contributor should have nothing to worry about. <laughs> Wait, so Kurt, where did this come from, by the way, this this audio that we just heard? Yeah, this was this was from a source of mine who was at the company at the time who shared it. So this this was there were a lot of journalists pretty tuned into this meeting, as you can imagine. At the time, there were a lot of employees that were happy to to help get this out there. It sounds kind of brutal in some of the ways that all meetings like this are. I guess you're not you know you know it's not in person. There's like a a weird quality, but but again, reading the description of this in your book, I, it, it felt heightened. Um, you mentioned we we didn't hear it, but I guess he he eventually started talking about the aliens. Is that is that right? That's right. How he had no, never seen proof of aliens. That was mostly how the conversation ended. So that was a bit of a an odd note for people who were not used to talking about aliens during work meetings. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's go forward a bit. And I want to talk about where this thing that is Twitter, now called X, that has, you know, sort of how dramatically it's changed since then. And also like what it means for the business, which, of course, what, you know, what you're covering now for, for Bloomberg. First of all, I just want to just like give us a little teeny taste of kind of the next beat of this story, which is to my mind, you know, November 2023, I think you know where this is going, Kurt, but Elon Musk doing some really great sales work from the stage of the DealBook conference uh, in New York City. <laughs> if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. How, Kurt, Kurt how, does, how does Twitter make money these days? Oh, you funny that you should ask, Max. They actually make money from advertisers and, you know, the people who Elon was speaking to when he was on stage at DealBook. Do you think, though, there's any chance that 
in the same way that like with cable news, you know, for many and, and, and TV news, right? For many years, there was kind of like one style of TV news was very objective. And then it with the advent of cable, it bifurcated and or eventually bifurcated where you had like kind of like left wing networks and right wing networks. I mean, do you think that could happen with with like with social media? I mean, that has been like kind of the bet of a bunch of entrepreneurs, none of whom have done it very well, but also none of whom are Elon Musk. Like, is there like a multi-billion dollar right wing social network? Is that possible? I'm not super confident that that's possible only because I feel like we've seen, you know, a version of that with true social, right? Like if Donald Trump can't necessarily make a purely like conservative right wing social network work at, at, at scale, then I don't know why Twitter and Elon would necessarily be able to do that. I think it's very possible that there's several of these networks that show up, like I can speak anecdotally, like if I go to Threads, which is the new sort of like Twitter clone that Meta owns, and, and you talk like negatively about Elon over there, your engagement's great. Like if you want to go get followers on Threads, just go over there and talk about how much you hate Elon Musk, and, and you're probably going to be a very popular person. So, you know, you could see where these things start to diverge and like there's there's networks for differing beliefs or differing viewpoints, but it's hard to imagine them getting to the scale that you would need for this to become like a, a massive thing the way that Twitter was. So what do you think is the most, Elon likes to say that, what, what does he like to say? The most likely outcome is the funniest outcome? Or uh, uh, what do you think is the most likely outcome for this for this story, for the, the sort of Elon Musk Twitter story? Until very recently, I actually thought the most likely outcome was going to be bankruptcy, quite frankly, because I thought that this company was losing money quite consistently. And I didn't know if Elon had the patience or stomach to just continually pay out of pocket for this thing to keep operating. Now, I kind of have started to subscribe to this XAI idea, which is like, if he can figure out a way to use the data associated with Twitter to make money with something that's not Twitter, it really takes the pressure off of, you know, the advertising business, which they clearly aren't doing well. So I I kind of feel like it's going to continue to exist because it's hard for me to imagine Elon admitting defeat, right? Saying, hey, I thought I could do this thing, but look, I ran it into the ground does not strike me as something that we're ever going to hear him admit to or say. And so then you say, okay, well, what's the other alternative? It's that it gets subsumed by something else. And I think Tesla is not going to take over Twitter. SpaceX certainly isn't. But an AI company, if this is a real thing, maybe it would be a it would be a logical you know product within that. Do you feel like Twitter, this thing that has some kind of specialness to it in terms of like like you said, like we talked about at the beginning, this sort of like a heartbeat of of the world's information. It's it's like what is happening right now. It really, even if even if you you can criticize it and still feel like this thing is important and special, it'd be sad if it goes away. Does that feel like a tragedy to you if if Twitter becomes just like a way to train bots? Do, have we lost something here in, in during this period? And and is is there is there any hope of saving of reclaiming or or at least preserving some of what is actually really good about this thing today? I I do think it's sad, and I think that Twitter 
at its best was one of the most entertaining places you could go on the internet. And actually, I think I would have said that this is completely gone, except for, I don't know if you were on Twitter, or I keep calling it Twitter, or maybe I should call it X. I was on X during the Super Bowl, and I actually kind of got a glimpse of like what old Twitter used to be like, like being on X during the Super Bowl was fun for me. And maybe those moments will crop up. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's like, on one hand, I'm sad. It's like we're like we're like a junkie, and like we're getting this like really cut down version of the old high, and we're still still into it. On the other hand, I think you're right. There's something. There is just something you can criticize social media and feel like it's bad, and and it's it can be a vehicle for all sorts the aggrandizement of billionaires, but it does have a magic to it, and and I think that's maybe a good place to leave things. Kurt Wagner, thank you so much for being here on Elon Inc. Battle for the Bird is out now. You can read an excerpt at Bloomberg.com. You you should also go buy the book from your local bookseller. Kurt, thank you for being here, and looking forward to seeing you next time as a panelist on this show. This was awesome, Max. Thank you so much. I love love chatting with you and getting the chance to talk about the book. So thank you very much. Okay, let's end it there. Thanks for listening to Elon Inc. And thanks to Kurt Wagner. Once again, the book is called Battle for the Bird, and it's on sale now. This episode was produced by Stacey Wong. Naomi Shaven and Rehan Harmansi are our senior editors. The idea for this very show also came from Rehan. Blake Maples handles engineering, and we get special editing assistance from Jeff Brokott. Our supervising producer is Magnus Hendrickson, and thank you, as always, to Joel Weber. The Elon Inc. theme is written and performed by Taka Yazuzawa and Alex Seguiera. Sage Bauman is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts and our executive producer. I'm Max Chafkin. If you have a minute, rate and review this show. They'll help new listeners find us, and we will really appreciate it. And we will see you next week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.